This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. For many of us who've grown up in the so-called West, our understanding of what belly dancing is has been shaped by colonialism's legacy. What we've learned about or encountered as belly dancing is actually a whitewashed mishmash of several cultures designed to play into the West's fascination with and manufactured fear of those designated Muslim. My guest today, Shruk El Attar, is an LGBTQ rights campaigner, electronics engineer, and belly dancer from Egypt. She is currently working on a piece of interactive art, a belly dancing robot, which troubles the line between technology and human and between the East and the West. Her desire is to return belly dancing, or more accurately, Egyptian dancing, to its roots, which, she reminds us, has little to do with the movement of the belly and was never a practice restricted to women. Today, we explore her experience as an asylum seeker, her fascination with technology, and the moment she learned the people in her television set were there through the magic of engineering. She shares what she's learned about nations and borders and citizenship, the joy, refusal, and revolution enabled through dance, and how she's turned her life experience and passion into both art and activism. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Shruk El Attar. Thank you so much for being here and for making time for me and for Busy Being Black listeners. I've been doing my research and watching videos of you and I'm just, you're such a delight and I'm so happy to have you in this space. Oh, thank you. That's literally the nicest introduction ever. Really lovely to meet you too and I'm so happy to be here. Um, to open our conversation, how's your heart? How is my heart? I have never been asked that before. Um, I feel good today. It's really sunny um, and I'm trying to concentrate on the positives. I feel like we're living through this time of such upheaval and mm -hmm. violence and mm. um, disregard for mm. the lives of queer people of color in particular. Um, and we're seeing that kind of emerge through the situation with Ukraine and Europe and we're kind of encountering these really hard yet porous borders. And so your experience as um, an asylum seeker is very interesting to me, particularly in this present moment. And I wonder mm. if you might feel comfortable to talk about um, your journey to the UK as, as, a, as an asylum seeker. Yeah, of course. It's, um, it's interesting that you mention Ukraine because I've obviously what's happening in Ukraine is terrible those people have been through very traumatic things and we should be very welcoming and we should be very open but the treatment that I'm seeing um, with this specific refugee crisis is completely different to refugee crises or, or, or refugees who come from black and brown backgrounds um, I came here as a child in 2007 I was probably 14 or 15 and even though I was very young, I could feel just how unwanted I was, just how unwelcomed I was. And I come from Egypt where 
you know if if you're in Egypt and you find find out that somebody's visiting you know they're they're from somewhere else uh, literally people on the street will invite you over to the house people who have nothing so I was expecting that sort of treatment and it was the complete opposite and I wonder you know why this um this this treatment is different um uh, this time and, and and I don't know whether to look at it positively or not because you know on one hand I'm like okay maybe maybe the UK understands the the plight of refugees now maybe maybe after that when something else happens in Yemen or Syria or Egypt we're gonna we're gonna be just as welcoming and on the other hand I think maybe that's just because you know these are people that we can relate to because they look like them um, and I wonder if something else happens in the future, but for, for black and brown people, if, if, if it will be any different to how it was before. Uh, but yeah, I came to the UK in 2007. Um, I was actually on holiday in London. Uh, we were going to go to France and Amsterdam after. And uh, we sort of do this every year, which is something... Um, most Egyptians don't get to do. So in Egypt, we don't really have that freedom of travel. People don't just, you know, get a plane ticket and they're like, oh, we're going to go and enjoy somewhere else now. It's a very difficult thing to do and normally reserved for the upper classes. And um, I uh, was very fortunate to have a family that was able to do something like that. Uh, but even though we had, you know, money and able to travel abroad, um, my mum was forced to claim asylum when I was here. Um, it was completely unexpected. My life turned around in one night. I didn't have enough clothes with me even to, you know, stay here forever and didn't have my certificates. So like it was really hard to go to schools. Um, we were put in an asylum seeker shelter and uh, that was a difficult experience um we had we were put in an asylum seeker shelter called lynx house in cardiff um it's rampant with abuse and racism and uh, um really i don't know how long i was there for but it felt like years it felt like years uh, and i was so glad to get out so when we got resettled and i was able to go to school and make friends it was amazing it was like it was like Christmas I was like yay I can <laughs> I can go to school now I can hang out with people my age um yeah so does that yeah. does that answer your your my start of my journey yeah, yeah, to the UK so. <laughs> <laughs> well and I, you know I've had this conversation on the show before um because it's something I think is interesting like and then I, I feel very fortunate to uh, to be able to to converse with about as as from the position of an observer, right? I'm mm -hmm. very aware that there's an immense amount of privilege that I've been able to exercise moving, you know, being born in the UK, going to school in the US, coming back to the UK and borders not really for me in my life being a thing I've had to contend with. Mm -hmm. So I'm very aware of that positionality. I'm also very aware that the more and more that queerness is kind of assimilated into a national identity, whether that's in the US, the UK, or Europe, that the way that refugees and asylum seekers are treated are the places they're put into, the journeys that they're forced to embark upon to get to quote unquote safe countries is like a really damning indictment of the societies and the cultures that we live in, right? And I mm -hmm. think it's exceedingly important that we as queer people understand that our kind of, um, our, our, our quote unquote belonging um, mm. in places like the UK is kind of dependent upon this continued exclusion, violent exclusion of people like us who look like us from other parts of the world. Mm. So I, I keep talking mm. about it. I think for me, the most ironic thing is, so my friends in Egypt today, so 2022, uh, who are queer are imprisoned under laws that uh, are colonial laws so exported by the UK. So we've exported homophobia. And now we're seen as these, you know, champions of LGBT plus rights. And when we take in and uh, quote unquote, take in uh, LGBT plus people from around the world for quote unquote safety, 
uh, we're getting, you know, this feeling of accomplishment, but when really it's our fault, you know, it's our fault. We've done this. (laughs) And the UK has never been good at taking responsibility for its actions, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yeah. And how would you characterize your your understanding of what life is like in Egypt for LGBTQ people at the moment? Um, uh, I feel... So I take a lot of credit for the work that goes in Egypt because I have the privilege of being out and being safe. So I can say, you know, uh, so I have a charity called the Shrikalata Trust and I help. Um, so any donations that come through that um, helps um, LGBT plus people have access to mental health support, safer housing, safer meaning, uh, meeting spaces, which is crucial. Uh, but I can stand there and say, you know, this is the work that your donations are helping to do when really a lot of the work that's happening well all of the work that's happening is happening by people on the ground Mm. in Egypt who can't take credit for it who can't say hi it's me who've done who's done the thing so it does come with a bit of guilt and I I can't wait for one day where people in Egypt are recognized for for the work that they do um, it's not great at the moment. Um, there's, I don't know if you know of Sarah Gezi. Yeah. Um, so for a long time, and I guess maybe to an extent still today, the only place LGBT plus people had um, to be safe in Egypt was online. Um, so there is a huge online LGBT plus community. I have a lot of friends there. Um, but a lot of us wouldn't have met in person because it's, it's sort of dangerous right. to meet in person. Um, but some of the people that I've met were people like Sarah Gazi. And um, I was speaking with Sarah for ages and uh, she, I think in 2015 or something, you know, she was telling me, it's different now, you should come back. And I was sort of excited. I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I should come back. And then in 2017, she posted a picture of her waving a rainbow flag in a concert in downtown Cairo for a band oh, called Mashur Ale. Yeah, I remember this. And I did see that picture and for a couple of hours, I was like, oh my God, she's right. She's right. You can take a picture, you can post it, you can have your face on it. It's different. And then two hours later, WhatsApp was going mad. People were, you know, texting, you know, I can hear steps, they're coming now and then disappearing. And it was so messed up and, and, and we probably didn't know where Sarah was for a couple of days. She was completely disappeared. We knew that the you know, Egyptian FBI came and took her. Um, and then we found out where she was and she was held in solitary confinement. She was sexually assaulted. She was tortured um, for waving a rainbow flag. Um, and we were able to help her get to safe country, quote unquote, Canada. Um, she hated it. She she was so she felt like such an outcast. Um, and the experience, the combined experience, really affected her mentally. And she developed PTSD. And a couple of years ago, she took her own life. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. So that's. Uh, I feel like that's sort of the um, known case, but this sort of things happens all the time. Um, and I feel like she's given her life to put LGBT plus rights in Egypt on the map. And, and I think people are talking about it now because of this. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I just want to leave some space for us to honor that contribution right, that she's made. Yeah, 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 it shouldn't have had to be that way but it is it is what it is and since it is what it is we should do what we can you say something in your bio that really stands out to me and that I'd love to draw you out on Uh, it's what I think is an important um, use of language you say quote they were forced to claim asylum in the UK following a series of events end quote. Now, this stood out to me for two reasons. I read, quote, following a series of events, end quote, as 
a refusal to divulge, right? It's vague. And that stood out to me. I thought that's very interesting. I want to talk to her about that. And you also say um, forced to claim asylum, which Mm -hmm. I'd like us to start with, um, which I think links to um, your late friend as well, that I think that we have this kind of really awful perception of asylum seekers and refugees here in the UK, Mm -hmm. which is kind of fomented by a really racist and right-wing press. Mm. And I think that the the specific use of the word forced is so instructive about Mm -hmm. like what it takes for people to make that decision to leave home. Could you speak more about that decision and that word forced? I guess, um, I think people, so I, I didn't really think anything of it when I was writing it it's just you know the the right term that came to mind and it wasn't anything big it's just how it happened um uh but I guess if we dig deeper into it it's a reminder that people never or almost never sort of plan this out a lot of people find themselves in situations where this is a something that they're forced to do like nobody wants to leave home nobody wants to leave their entire life behind and all the people they know and everything they know behind for nothing um and that was certainly the case for us like I said I didn't even have enough clothes uh to allow me to live in this country I didn't have any friends I am so lucky that I spoke English I don't know just how isolated I would have felt if I didn't speak English and that actually reminds me a lot of the people who are stuck on the Calais border because a lot of them want to reach the UK because they already speak English or because they have family here um, and people really monsterize that uh, if that's the term but I was forced I didn't choose to claim asylum I was forced to claim asylum Mm. And the other part is, you know, following a series of events, which I, I think is, we won't go into it, right? Because it's, <laughs> I think it's <laughs> well, purpose. I'm in two minds, actually, because um, so following a series of events, uh, I'm not always in the headspace of explaining what those series of events is. I don't feel I owe it to anybody. Um, and um, I also feel like, you know, people, people pick and choose what's a, what's an okay series of events and what's a not okay series of events right do you know what I mean absolutely like um okay you've escaped war understood you haven't escaped war all right explain to me a bit more why is that um why why should I give you asylum why why do you why do you deserve to be a refugee why do you deserve to live in this country and I hate that Mm. um and because I am <laughs> on this podcast and I and I, I know the sort of people who listen, hello, everybody, um, I, I am very comfortable to say uh, with no regrets, and I completely understand why, my mum lied. My mum said we're from Iraq because that's from... It's really difficult to get um, asylum based on the situation we're in, which is based on a lot of domestic violence. And uh, like my my father has a lot of influential power, is a very big businessman in Egypt, knows, has big ties with the government. Um, and that's much harder to prove as a danger than, you know, saying um, to save your children, um, we've we've come from a war zone that's a that's an easier um situation to in the eyes of the law um and uh it it was it it was difficult it was difficult to um go through this you know quote-unquote plan there's so many quote-unquotes here (laughs) but Um, they're necessary (laughs) right we do have to make those air quotes (laughs) (laughs) um but actually for the home office because they did discover that my that my mum lied about where we were from um they refused to believe anything else so they just said you are basically because you lied to us once we're not going to believe anything uh you say so she literally you know she had x-rays and and everything you know proving when my dad pushed her out of the window and she fell and broke her spine and all of that and they were like yes that does 
match your story but also you lie to us once so we're not going to believe anything you say wow i'm sorry no <laughs> it's not your fault yeah. but thank you yeah. <laughs> and your experience as um as an asylum seeker led to some really definitive action that i'd love to talk to you about um, you were part of the Student Action for Refugees, or STAR, while you were at university, yes. and led a really incredible campaign that I'd love you to tell listeners about. Yeah, of course. So I um, was always obsessed with electronics. I remember watching TV when I was very young and just thinking, oh my God, what's this magic? And thinking that there is people living inside my TV. And back then TVs were huge. They could have literally had tiny little people living inside them. Um, and then when I got a bit older, I realized that it's a machine uh, built by people like me. And I just got obsessed with electronics. And I started to take everything apart, everything electronics apart. Uh, and I longed for the day that I would be able to study this really cool subject at university so I can do that magic myself. Um, I came to the UK, I was an asylum seeker and I actually finished A-levels uh, really early. I think I finished them at 15 um, and I was so excited to finally study that magic and I applied to universities and then I realized that I had so many barriers going to university. I was indirectly not allowed to go to university because of my status as an asylum seeker. And being an asylum seeker um, is something that can take years. So some people are born into the, the status. Uh, it can take three months. It can also take 20 years. In my case, it took about seven years. Wow. Um, and you don't know if tomorrow is going to be your last day in the country. I don't know if I'm going to be deported tomorrow. And that's what happened, you know, with my family. It was very sudden as well. Um, and I uh, thought that was really unfair uh, that we couldn't study because of claiming our legal rights. So claiming asylum is everybody's legal right. Um, and we like on top of that I wasn't allowed to leave the country so I couldn't go and study anywhere else right. I had to be in the UK I had to study in the UK I wasn't allowed to work so I was asked to do nothing basically I wasn't allowed to claim benefits uh, at one point actually the home office told me that I wasn't allowed to volunteer and then I printed out the laws to them and told them you're wrong wow. uh, but that's because I spoke English they told this to many other people probably and they just took it and you know just were depressed in their shelter without being able to do anything because they were legally not allowed to. Uh, so I joined Student Action for Refugees and I um, with Student Action for Refugees so started this, a campaign. Sorry I'm just going to slow you down so when you uh, your asylum uh, claim is approved is, is that how you say it they they say yeah. you can <laughs> Uh, you can seek asylum here and then you get to go to university and so it's at university that you joined STAR? No I joined STAR much much earlier. Ah okay. Uh, I must, I way before I was allowed. Sorry about that. Okay. Oh no no uh, so I was actually not allowed to join STAR so I joined STAR unofficially in about 2009-2008 okay. uh, because uh, you're supposed to be a student to join STAR and I wasn't allowed to be a student right. to join okay, STAR so I just turned up to their student meetings <laughs> I just like acted like I was a student and um, then uh, they asked for just the committee to stay behind and I stayed behind with the committee and obviously like the committee knew I wasn't on the committee but British people are just so nice <laughs> they're just like won't address the problem so I so I became an unofficial committee member um, and then when I was allowed to go to university I, I became an official member but yes I I snuck into STAR <laughs> and what was STAR's or what is STAR's goal uh, so SAR uh, stands for Student Action for Refugees, and um, they are uh, uh, loads of student societies, uh, all answering to sort of a national charity at the top. Um, and they do many, many campaigns to help asylum seekers and refugees in the UK. 
Uh, so a lot of their members are also asylum seekers and refugees, but it's not just asylum seekers and refugees uh, members. And a part of that is addressing um, what you experienced, which was this kind of an indirect um, prohibition on further education for asylum seekers and refugees, because you had to pay some sort of, or they were suggesting you pay some sort of extortionate amount to attend school while also preventing you from working or going yeah. anywhere else to study. <laughs> so is that one of the key issues that you took up when you joined STAR officially? Yeah, exactly. So, so the situation is, for people who don't understand, is you are treated as an international student even though you live seeker. in the UK as an asylum wow. seeker because you don't have British citizens, citizenship and you don't have residency, you get treated as an international student. Now, by definition, that's wrong because an international student is somebody who travels to study. Uh, we are traveling to save our lives. Um, but then we're put in an impossible situation where we're asked to pay these extortionate fees, which are much higher than home fees, and at the same time, not allowed to go to student finance. So you can't get any student loan. You're not allowed to work to even try and dream of saving up that money. Right. And you're not allowed to travel. So you can't study anywhere else. So you're indirectly not allowed. So you're put in an impossible situation. Really. And so you led the campaign for equal access. Yes, equal access to higher education. Uh, <laughs> which is a very snappy name. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, so just um, I worked with a lot of volunteers. Actually, we have around 30,000 volunteers across the country. Wow. It's incredible. It's amazing. Um, and I spoke at Parliament a few times and spoke to vice chancellors, um, anybody really who can help. And I'm so excited to say that, what are we, 2022? So we have over 75 universities that are equal access universities today and when I started there was none and there's about 108 universities total wow. in the UK. Now but now what's the material impact of that? So if we take your situation as someone who was indirectly prevented from higher education what has the campaign for equal access to higher education resulted in? How will that materially impact the lives of, of current and future asylum seekers? Uh, so as an asylum seeker in the UK today, you can study uh, without having to pay these extortionate fees um, at 75 universities in the UK. Um, the, each deal is a bit different. So some universities will give you a complete scholarship. Some universities will give you sort of a loan that you can pay back when, when you have citizenship, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, each, each university is a very different deal. <laughs> That's tremendous work. Well, I mean, it's not me. It's sure, 30,000 volunteers. But it's, you know, from you walking in and, you know, sticking around, you're taking advantage, if you will, of, of British, um, <laughs> British <laughs> propriety. Um, and kind of, that's a tremendous journey that you've, that you've been on. And that, that metabolizing of your own experience into action, I think, is really powerful. Thank you. And, you know, I do feel like getting the entire country to be an equal access nation is a dream that can come true. So if you are a university listening, please consider having equal access at your university. If you already do, thank you. You are changing the lives of so many people in ways you can't even understand. So thank you so much. Busy Being Black returns in just a moment. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with Shruk Elatar, an electronics engineer and LGBTQ rights campaigner who's turned her fascination with the magic of technology and her experience as an asylum seeker into both art and activism. She was part of Student Action for Refugees and helped lead the initiative to provide equal access to higher education for asylum seekers in more than 70 universities across the UK. She's one of two taking part in Watershed's annual Winter Residencies program, an opportunity for artists to develop cutting-edge ideas at Pervasive Media Studio, Watershed's creative technologies research space. So you're not just an engineer, 
you were, as you said earlier in our conversation, that you had you were drawn to the magic of technology and machines. You're also an artist and a performer. Um, can you talk to us about what you're working on at the moment? Sure. So I am working on a couple of things, not least the belly dancing robot or Egyptian dancing robot. Um, and also uh, a theater show where the dancing robot is going to be part of. Um, it's actually, it's a huge project. Let me, let me start from Dancing Queer. Okay. Uh, so I do this act called Dancing Queer where I belly dance or Egyptian dance in um, drag. So I, I wear a beautiful beard, but also beautiful makeup and beautiful sort of glittery clothes. Um, and I name it Dancing Queer uh, because I'm dancing and I'm queer, but it's also a protest against um, the treatment of LGBT plus Egyptians. So I'm using two of the biggest parts of my identity, being Egyptian, the art of Egyptian dance, and being queer, the art of drag. Um, and together I do this, hopefully raising awareness about sort of the plight of LGBT plus people in Egypt, but also raise money uh, for my charity uh, that helps um, LGBT plus initiatives in Egypt as well. Um, yeah, go Well, on. now you say belly dancing or Egyptian dancing. Can you, what's the difference? Uh, so <laughs> belly dancing is a Western coined name that is a terrible description of Egyptian dancing because we don't use our bellies, we actually use our hips. And in fact, the original belly dancing costumes didn't even show your stomach or your hands. You were covered completely, uh, but had jingles in them. <laughs> I just, you know, I don't know why. I'm... <laughs> why do we do this? No, I, <laughs> I just, I, I'm always surprised when I get surprised at, <laughs> at how, how things are ruined right how how british how the british um and we'll talk about the the british in particular because that's the context in which we both live how the british got their hands on things and ruined them so <laughs> it's not belly dancing at all but and i guess maybe we might make a parallel to the kind of um the trope the east asian woman trope that hollywood helped propagate right mm -hmm. um the the music that's not even authentically chinese the the obsession yoga right right which is <laughs> yeah um and so and so belly dancing is much the same, right? It was kind of this thing that became a, a trope of what it meant to be maybe broadly Arab, not even specifically Egyptian, right? Well, so belly dance, when we say belly dance in the West, we mix it all into one. Right, yeah. Uh, so when I see belly dancers, I see them doing moves from Egypt. I see them doing moves from Morocco and I see them doing moves from Iraq and call it all belly dance. And okay. it's very... And you know what? I'm completely fine with that. If you understand the history, if you understand what you're doing and explain that that's what you're doing, that's fine. It's just, I've literally lived through the erasure and it's been such a weird experience. And I guess, you know, that's definitely what happened to yoga, but before my time. Sure. So living through that with belly dance or Egyptian dance is very strange. And I think the sad thing is a lot of, probably Egyptians and Arabs like I don't even know if sort of Gen Z Egyptians know the history of belly dance right you, like you'll you'll say the term Rawazis and they'll probably understand what that is but won't won't connect the dots so Rawazis are the original Egyptian dancers um and uh they uh, used to be street entertainers um, and uh, they were men and women <laughs> uh, again uh, very beautiful costumes but their stomach and arms were were all covered um, and it's not a thing that women do for men's sexual entertainment and that's fine to exist too mm. uh, but it's just how people dance whatever gender you are you do it for yourself you do it for your own enjoyment it's how you express your joy your sadness that's it's just dance um and it's really weird to see yeah well <laughs> so, I guess that's the intersection of colonialism right and 
Egyptian culture and history, right? It's this kind of flattening of, and not even flattening. I mean, in the case of belly dancing, it's a complete like transmogrification of something and into something else, right? Totally. Like I remember watching YouTube videos uh, when I was, you know, 15, 16 and seeing, you know, the, the ones who take belly dancing competitions and you know when win first second third prizes they are doing moves that I don't know how to do and that made me the Egyptian feel like I'm not a good belly dancer even though it's my culture (laughs) (laughs) Um, but uh, so there was this incredible woman in Egypt uh, so we exported this harem fantasy of you know uh, in the Victorian era uh, these harem fantasy of belly dancers dancing for the male sultan, right? Um, and then tourists were coming to Egypt and expecting that. And then when they found uh, the actual belly dance, they, they weren't interested. It's not what they came for. And there was this amazing businesswoman called Sabi Amistahani who caught on that and was like, you know what, if that's what they want, I'll cater for that. Opened loads of cabarets in Egypt, uh, loads of uh, women sort of belly dancers wearing that burlesque style costume that we know today um, and that's became very successful and that's belly dance as we know today wow so that's how it, it got to this stage um, but also in Egypt today what really bothers me is probably throughout the last 10 years any new belly dancer in Egypt is still not Egyptian so Ala Kushnir or, or um, uh, Safinas, they're all sort of Eastern Europeans, uh, very white looking. If you Google belly dancer, nobody looks Egyptian. Um, and again, I really do not want anybody to not take up that form of dance. It's beautiful. I want everybody to learn it. I just, I'm uncomfortable with erasure. You know, we can do both. We can have this and we can also be aware of the history and we can also be, make space for Egyptians to also have a name in belly dance. That that really bothers me that, you know, I'd go to a belly dance festival and there'd be no Egyptians on stage except for me. Yeah, it's it's the it takes that theft to another level, right? Mm-hmm. This colonial theft. This it, it, it kind of it's such a brilliant example of it, right? It becomes something that, as you've said, you don't you no longer have access to as the kind of uh as one of the originating as one as a member of the originating culture right and that but what else is also lost as a part of that is the the history of the Gawazi am I saying that correctly yeah Gawazi um and that it's this reclamation I guess that you're going on right now is that right would you say I feel like that. Like, I feel, you know, people look at dancing queer and me dancing in drag as um, taken away from that. But I feel like it's actually going back to history to where it wasn't a thing that's there to sexually entertain men. Again, not against that. Just just as a you know reminder, it's something done by everybody of all gender. And I feel very empowered when I'm on stage with a beard because I feel like <laughs> all the cis het men are just like ew I don't want to look at that I'm like yay <laughs> but we know they do <laughs> but we know they do so maybe if they do they can question themselves That's, about yeah. you know because <laughs> well, we are learning that right I think more and more it's becoming uh, particularly helped along by you know younger generations who seem less wedded to both the binary and heteronormative ideas of what it means to express our gender. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly statistically, the data, right, the, the studies that have been done show that heterosexuality is not actually that common, right? It's not the thing that, you know, your, your physiology betrays you <laughs> in many ways. Yes, you know what? Yes, yes. And it's not just sort of sexuality and gender. It's like sex as in, XXXY chromosomes mm. are a lie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've only just learned that. I didn't know that because I, I was taught it's XX and XY, you know? Yeah. I was taught that if you are a woman, you have less testosterone than men. And if you are a, a man, you have uh, less estrogen than women. But even biology is such a rainbow 
um, and, uh, why is that erased? Yeah, I remember Travis Alabanza said to me once, uh, the idea that there are 7 billion people on the planet and only two genders is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, it totally is. <laughs> yes, Travis. Yeah. Bristol represents. <laughs> I'm in Bristol, by the way, yes. friends. <laughs> yeah, for listeners, Travis Alabanza is also from Bristol. Um, and so what is the watershed residency that you're part of now helping you do? Oh my God. So I, I love the watershed. Thank you, watershed. Lots of love. Um, so they have uh, accepted me as a resident, now permanent, um, uh, to do. Uh, so the winter residency was to develop that belly dancing robot. So with the belly dancing robot, I feel like it's something where I finally bring my whole self to stage. I'm bringing, you know, the queerness, I'm bringing the Egyptianness, but now I'm bringing the engineering too. And literally my whole self is so exciting. Um, So it's something that I do it with. And the way that I wanted to build it is, well, two things. Um, One is I do not want to, or I didn't want to program it in a way where Oh, it's pre-programmed to dance in a certain way. I want it to listen to the music and dance to what it hears. So every interaction is unique. Wow. Uh, you have a very unique interaction with that robot. And the second thing is I wanted to build it with whatever is lying around your house. Okay, I'm talking toilet paper. I am talking lollipop stick. I am talking dog collars because... Um, even though I'm an engineer and well-known engineer, I find myself so uncomfortable in engineering spaces. I'll find myself in a conference, engineering conference with hundreds of people, and I'm still the only one who looks like me. Um, And I feel like it's not made accessible enough for people like me or people who um, don't think they could be be doing anything engineering so I want to build it in a way where people feel like you know what I can build this too so I'm working also on tutorials on how to build your own belly dancing robot but yes it's its head is made of a small exercise ball um, and it's very customizable so uh, you can choose whatever you know hair I'm expecting a little army of belly dancing robots some with purple hair some with afros some with um, black hair all of that and so, so you're inviting other people to create with you as well? Yes. So the plan is um, part of my theatre show, uh, which will hopefully tour next year, is I'd also be offering a separate workshop to teach people to build their own uh, belly dancing robot. I want to speak to you about engineering, but I'm not, I'm not very well versed in engineering science and technology is not my (laughs) I could talk to you about books and culture and literature all day um but it's clear that you see potential in engineering that goes beyond the building of something the building of things well yeah it's it's not really the building of things at all I think that's just a small part of it um and I I'm glad you don't like I'm glad we're having an engineering conversation when as you say you don't feel like you're first into it I hate I hate terms like this I feel like engineering should be for everybody and I hate using jargon Um, and I feel like the engineering community a lot of the times does that on purpose to exclude people so please let's talk about engineering let's make it accessible Uh, let's use small words so sum up for you what engineering makes possible so for me um engineering is about creativity uh and i think we have failed because we don't encourage creativity into engineering let me let me give you an example uh so a couple of years ago i was working at a femtech um called lv and i made circuits uh for things like uh smart wearable silent breast pumps so for people who breastfeed something that it actually works for people who need to go shopping I don't know if you've ever heard uh, a breast pump Uh, you have to be plugged in they're very heavy Uh, they are literally and I'm not joking the same thing we use for cows we've taken the same thing that we milk dairy cows with and gave it to humans because I guess we see those humans mostly as women and we think that 
you know, women are dairy cats. Uh, so for people who breastfeed, uh, I uh, worked with this uh, company uh, that made something that actually works for, for the normal 21st century human. Uh, so you can literally put it in a bra uh, and walk around and nobody will know that you are breastfeeding. Wow. Um, and the technology in it, like it's great, but it's not that new. And it literally took 160 years to realize that people who breastfeed do not want to be treated like baby cows. And that's because we discourage people with creative thinking from entering engineering. Uh, so for me, engineering is about creativity. If you are creative, engineering is for you. You, can, you are invincible if you have an interest in engineering and are creative. So please, please don't be discouraged from it and come speak to me, come to my workshops. So now this makes your desire to create your robots with um, found things. Yes, uh, it makes it make a lot more sense, right? Because it is about <laughs> that creativity and using our imaginations in ways um, that we're not encouraged to. Exactly. And so people will be able to engage with you in the building of a robot to join your robot. Uh, what do you mean? Could you? Because you said you imagined kind of like a little army of robots with different colored hair and you know different found things. Is that what you're encouraging people to do? Is to join you in this in this process? Yes, to make their own. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the the workshops will be available in person. Uh, but there will also be freely available um, online material. Uh, and I'm also, so Watershed is uh, funding me for developing this uh, initial stage of the robot. Uh, but later on, I'm working with a company called RS Components, uh, who are funding uh, about eight, uh, I think, or 20, I can't remember, uh, seats for LGBT plus refugees to build their robot with me at no cost. Um, actually, hopefully pay them uh, to cover some of their costs too, to be there. And I'm looking for further funding as well to make this uh, more accessible to as many people who don't see themselves represented in this field as possible. Well, interestingly enough, UK Black Pride has a community action fund, which has funding hey. available. So you should suggest, consider putting in an application. Nice, we'll <laughs> do that, thank you. <laughs> um, we're almost out of time and as our conversation draws to a close, I wanted to put back in front of you something you said in an interview and which lit me up. You said, <laughs> it feels like a revolution. If I can't dance at it, it's not my revolution. And it's not a question, but there is such a commitment to joy in that statement. I have to be honest, I got that. I stole that quote from uh, somebody called Emma Goldman, who was a politician. And she said, if I can't dance at it, it's not my revolution. And when I dance, it really like when I dance as dancing queer, it feels like this is my revolution. And, it, you know, if I can't celebrate the revolution, I don't want it. If I can't dance at it, I don't want it. I love that. We're being called <laughs> to... And I think it's something I try to do on Busy Being Black is, is try to create space for joy and tenderness and vulnerability, right? And creativity and <laughs> imagination and thoughtfulness, right? By engaging people in conversations who see the world through a lens beyond pain, right? Who understand that pain is unfortunately constitutive, right? It kind of makes up our, our shared experience together, but that we find a way through it and that that is mm -hmm. worth celebrating and that's worth centering. Yes. Yes, totally. Yeah. I want to dance with you. <laughs> Let's dance together. <laughs> Let's dance together, Boo. We'll um, I'm sure we will. I, I like. I know. I know. Like we're on a Zoom now, but I do believe that in real life we will. I think we will. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> um, to close, I ask all of my guests the same question: What do you hope for? Oh, so many things, so many things. I hope for the UK to understand the refugee experience, to take responsibility for its actions, for creating uh, these crises. I also want for my community in Egypt to live safely, to live in peace, to be able to be themselves happily. And I feel like we will get there. So I have hope. And to dance. <laughs> And to dance, yes, <laughs> yalla, <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Shruk Elatar is an LGBTQ rights campaigner, electronics engineer, and belly dancer from Egypt. She was named one of BBC's 100 Most Influential Women in the World in 2018 and one of the Institution of Engineering and Technology's top six young women engineers in the UK in both 2019 and 2020. She is one of the artists taking part in Watershed's Winter Residencies program, which offers artists the opportunity to develop their ideas with the financial, critical, and technical support of Watershed. Watershed is the leading film culture and creative technology center in the southwest of England and champions engagement, imagination, and ingenuity, working locally, nationally, and globally from Bristol. You'll find links to Shrook's work and more information about Watershed in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer Black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City, for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.